Hey, Magnificasters. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Rather than Dean and I just giving you your favorite leftist Christian goofs, uh, this week we're going to do something a little bit more produced on an essay that Dean wrote for Commonweal Magazine on Thomas Haggerty. It should be pretty cool. Um, it's kind of a historical episode that we wanted to do something special with because, I don't know, it's cool. So check it out. just heard were the sounds of May Day 2019. There are people marching, chanting, drumming, and even a tuba in there somewhere. It's one of those days that the left in the United States becomes really visible and noisy. Commenting on the history of May Day, the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm says, it's the only unquestionable dent made by a secular movement in the Christian or any other official calendar. A holiday established not in one or two countries, but in 1990, officially in 107 states. What is more, it is an occasion established not by the power of governments or conquerors, but by an entirely unofficial movement of poor men and women. Though they weren't at the first May Day, the political organization I associate most with May Day is the IWW, or the Industrial Workers of the World. So, like Hobsbawm says, May Day is usually thought of as one of the high secular holy days of the left. It's a day when leftists of all types come to celebrate the struggle for the eight-hour workday and the martyrdom of people like Albert Parsons, Johann Most, August Spies, and Louis Ling. Politically speaking, the wake of May Day has left behind the Socialist Party of America and some pretty militant labor unions. But alongside these parties and unions, there was another political organization that had grander ambitions than simply electoral politics or a trade union. That's right, the IWW. The IWW was a group with more of an anarchist bent, and it worked to create one big union in the United States. To give you more of a sense about what the IWW is actually about, here's a clip of Utah Phillips, one of the most notable musicians from the IWW, reading the preamble to the Constitution of the IWW. From the preamble to the Constitution of the Industrial Workers of the World, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. There can be no peace so long as hunger and want are found among millions of the working people and the few who make up the employing class have all the good things of life. Between these two classes, a struggle must go on until the workers of the world, organized as a class, take possession of the earth and the machinery of production and abolish the wage system. <sighs> That's who we are. So it's clear that the IWW is out for something that makes even the most radical U.S. politicians of today, or, you know, of the 1900s, look pretty conservative. The IWW itself was founded by a coalition of popular 20th century leftists, including some pretty famous figures like Eugene Debs, Lucy Parsons, James Connolly, and a bunch of others. But its founding was ultimately in response to a manifesto by a rather unknown Catholic priest named Father Thomas Haggerty. So Hobsbawm isn't wrong to say that May Day is a secular holiday for the left, but it is interesting that radical Christians like Father Thomas Haggerty are never too far away from political struggle. To give some background on Father Tom Haggerty, I've asked Dean to uh, share some of the research he did for a recent Commonweal article that he wrote called May Day Saint, the Radical Ministry of Father Thomas Haggerty. To get us started, I turned the tables on Dean, and now he's the one that has to give an elevator pitch. Father Thomas Haggerty is the coolest Catholic priest that you've never heard of. He was a founder of the Industrial Workers of the World, among many other things. And if you join the IWW today and you read the preamble, you will still be reading mostly the words of Thomas J. Haggerty. 
His life is also shrouded in a lot of mystery, I think. Nobody really knows when he was born or when he died. He kind of just appears one day in the historical record. Um, the earliest sort of dates that we can really find uh, to, to patch together a narrative about his life are maybe around like 1892 when he says that he became a Marxist in seminary. By the time he gets to the end of his life, sometime in the early 20th century, uh, he's seen in 1917 and 1920 living in, in total poverty, and then he's never seen after that. From the beginning, there's a lot of intrigue surrounding Haggerty's life. He's a radical priest, he helped found the IWW, but there's also a lot of mystery about where he ended up. So we'll get to that mystery in a bit, but before that, I asked Dean what Haggerty was like as a priest. Before Haggerty was a founder of the IWW, he was working at a number of parishes. And the reason they were a number of parishes is because he would often outstay his welcome because of his commitment to labor and to the radical cause of labor. So, for example, even at his very first church in Chicago, he was already organizing people over faulty transit. Uh, like, he couldn't really help himself. And so he gets moved to another church uh, where, again, he starts organizing people and he moves throughout the American Southwest. And as he goes, he even translates materials into Spanish, for example, for uh, Mexican railroad workers while he's doing all the daily duties of a parish priest, you know, baptizing babies and giving people the Eucharist and saying mass. And he's living these two lives together. And to him, it doesn't really seem to be that much of a conflict, but it definitely raises eyebrows in his own community, and eventually it seems his church as well. Uh, at one point, he ends up uh, moving again to Las Vegas, and he attends a labor convention, and he gets really pumped up about it. And uh, Eugene Debs is there, and the two of them end up arguing, debating with different clergy over labor issues. And it's after that that Haggerty becomes a real sort of stumper for the Socialist Party of America. And meanwhile, his bishop decides to disown him over that radical politics. So he's trying to lead these two lives um, as, as one, but it seems like everybody is kind of confused about how to do that. They can't really like understand the paradox of his life. You've got to join that one big union You've got to join it by yourself Everybody here will join it with you You've got to join the one big union by yourself Living a dual life, Christian on the one hand, but radical socialist on the other, is something you might see in the lives of many Christians on the left. In fact, this kind of dual life is one of the places the political motivations of Christians are called into question by conservative and reactionary forces. Critics of those with leftist articulations of their faith are quick to make accusations that they're just baptizing politics and the rhetoric of Christianity for the gain of their own cause. These dual lives of Christian leftists are important to consider, but not suspiciously like the right-wing critics. Instead, we should consider the authenticity of these modes of faith and how the dual life isn't really all that dual. Haggerty wasn't a radical priest to gain power, but instead, his radical ethic grew out of his everyday religious beliefs. Yeah, the most fascinating thing about Thomas Haggerty, I think, is that amid all of his labor radicalism, he keeps insisting that he's a pretty average Catholic. And it comes through even in his writings. He wrote a number of pamphlets, and in those pamphlets, he often draws on Christian and Catholic imagery to really create an imaginative world and a kind of moral rhetoric. And so it's not just that you should support unions because 
labor is important or just because socialism is important or something like that. But you should do it because that would probably be the thing that Jesus wants you to do. And even though that was in stark contrast with the Catholic hierarchy of the time and many, many other Christians, of course, Haggerty rooted a lot of his thought within his own sort of faith. And he never really saw himself as a Christian socialist so much as a Christian finding reasons to be a socialist. So we have an average Catholic who is finding reasons and ways to be a socialist. He's upset the Catholic hierarchy by embracing a socialist politics, and he basically gets set loose. He's never formally removed from the priesthood, something that Haggerty reiterates a few different times in his life, but he does apply his religious energies to the world in a pretty different way. Before Haggerty gets to the IWW, he upsets another hierarchy, though this time it's not the Catholics, but the socialists. So one thing that's pretty amazing, I think, about Haggerty is that newspapers remember him as this amazing proponent of socialism for the Socialist Party. He's really a person trying to draw people into the institution of the Socialist Party, and he represents a radical wing of it, mostly that that heavy union wing, the the verging on kind of anarchist syndicalist union wing of the Socialist Party. And Haggerty is somebody who is definitely not a stranger to conflict and does not apparently seem to want to keep his views hidden. So he's a real orator. He's a polemicist. And that gets him a lot into a lot of trouble in the very short time that he is a member of the Socialist Party. So even though Haggerty is a huge asset to the Socialist Party, he's also a significant thorn in their side. And you see that he butts heads with all kinds of famous people in the Socialist Party. And Haggerty's also kind of a guy who has a, a, a real way with words. And so he creates all kinds of interesting uh, insults for these folks. So one of them is socialists, for example. Uh, he doesn't like the idea of all these people just taking forever ever to go through electoral politics in the slow meandering way to liberate the working class he wants something more intense than that and as he he keeps pushing for this line he keeps getting shut down even as the party slowly starts to drift a little bit toward the center and he's just not having it and eventually he goes and gives a whole a whole speech on the on a stage at a socialist party meeting and it creates such a huge scene and a huge upset that the person who's organizing the meeting breaks their gavel trying to silence him, and he has to be dragged from the stage. And it's after that that he ends up starting to think about some other vehicle for labor struggle that must be necessary, something that is more radical than the Socialist Party itself. The desire for something that took class struggle a bit more seriously than electoral politics is a perennial desire for leftists. The specter of communism is something that haunts precisely because you never know where it will strike next. Because capital is set up an unlivable social situation, leftists are often a bit antsy to bring the revolution rather than wait for reformist policies, and Haggerty is no different. Fed up with the reformism and electoral politics of the Socialist Party, Haggerty drew together a number of other leftists. They came up with a new manifesto. In his essay, Dean writes that, Haggerty and a group of radicals met right after the new year in 1905 to draw up a manifesto, naming class struggle as a fundamental and irrepressible conflict in society. The manifesto called for a collective movement without party affiliation. Haggerty was credited with writing most of it. It was out of this manifesto that the IWW was formed. But then we are share of this earth shall demand. Come on, do your share, lend a hand. There is power, there is power in a man to work in both when we stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land. One in 
so the IWW is the result of not only Haggerty's thought, uh, lots of other people involved as well. But you can't really tell the story of the IWW without talking about Thomas Haggerty. And he's there right from the beginning. So after the new year in 1905, Haggerty and a group of a bunch of other people get together and they drop this manifesto. And in the manifesto, they're just laying out the problems of, of class struggle as this sort of irreducible part of capitalism that just cannot be you know smoothed over or uh papered over in in these class harmony kinds of ways and the manifesto calls for people to come and talk this through and think of a different kind of of way of organizing and later in that year a bunch of people real sort of historical big names in the labor movement show up to do exactly that to imagine that and Haggerty is credited with writing the preamble, as I've said earlier, to the IWW Constitution. But he also basically is the the secretary for this whole meeting. He's taking minutes. He's putting out ideas. Uh, if you read the minutes to the IWW founding convention, Haggerty is there just getting asked like weird questions and having weird things to say. The founding of the IWW is such an amazing scene because all it's a real like who's who of the labor movement. So there's Eugene Debs there. You know, he's a perennial socialist candidate for the party that Haggerty's part of. And he's a friend uh, of Haggerty. Debs and Haggerty are, are good buddies. Uh, there's Lucy Parsons. She's the widow of Albert Parsons, one of the people who was hanged after Haymarket uh, on the first May Day. There's James Connolly. He's a, a radical Irish worker who goes back to Ireland to foment the Easter Rising. Uh, it's this amazing kind of just real like hotbed of radical activity. And at the center of it all is this wild Catholic priest, Thomas Haggerty, uh, you know, a guy who just a few years ago was like baptizing babies and now is running around the country trying to stir up, uh, stir the pot for for the cause of labor. And I think that's also just an amazing part of Haggerty's legacy is that, you know, he he himself is just at the heart of the IWW. He he helped build this institution that outlived him. Uh, but could, couldn't really have happened without him. As Dean says, Haggerty is at the heart of the IWW. While Haggerty himself is often left out of the ways we think about the IWW or radical politics in general, it's good to keep in mind that he wasn't out there by himself as some kind of sole religious voice. In fact, the IWW, at this time at least, was always playing with religion and its place in the working class culture of the early 20th century. I think my favorite example of this shows up in Utah Phillips' reflection on an IWW song, dump the bosses off your back. He tells his audience that it's to the tune of what a friend we have in Jesus, and then goes on to explain that the IWW would take the tunes to hymn songs because they were pretty, but they'd change the words so they'd be more true. Though, irony aside, there were a number of other Christians and other religious people enacting their faith through the political action of the IWW. Yeah, I mean, people often tell the story of the labor movement in the United States as a secular story. You know, mo most of the, the big names really aren't practicing Christians. I mean, some of them are, for sure. Uh, and many of them have Christian backgrounds. I mean, virtually all the big names, if you trace them far back enough, you know, they went to Sunday school or they went to church with their parents or something like that. Um, but for the most part, we don't remember this movement as one that is thoroughly sort of uh, full of really innovative theological energy. And I think that's that's a wrong way to remember it. I mean, this is something that's just creating all kinds of space for people of faith to imagine their own political laws differently and their own sort of religious identities differently. Um, there's lots of people to point to, especially in the IWW, which is kind of shot through with these Christian themes. 
um, sometimes playful and ironic, uh, sometimes a little bit less ironic. Um, but I think that uh, maybe if I could pull out just one to talk about, uh, it would probably be uh, George Washington Woodby, who was the sole black delegate to the Socialist Party conventions in um, the early 19th century for two of the conventions. And he was a, a pastor, a preacher. Uh, he worked in a church. Uh, and he, like Haggerty, also had this kind of increasing sense of, of radicalism. And it's something that I think is a is emblematic of a certain story that's common for people of faith within the labor movement, that once they get into it, uh, it starts to heighten not just their labor uh, sort of commitments, you know, both Haggerty and Woodby end up hanging out with the IWW after a while, but it also really intensifies their faith and they kind of end up having to navigate these tensions on all sides. And I think that it's important to look through the history of the labor movement and see people like Haggerty, uh, like Woodby, and many, many, many others, and say these are people who were integral to this movement. Uh, the, the movement could never have even had the successes that it did have without the involvement of pastors and, and lay people of faith and clergy and, and religious people in general. Uh, and I think we do a disservice to the labor movement to sort of erase that side of it. So far, we've been focusing on Haggerty's role in radical politics and the IWW. But after the IWW, Haggerty just sort of disappears. The timeline and biography of the end of Father Haggerty's life is pretty hard to discern. But we do have a few glimpses into what happened to him after the fact. Robert Doherty is a really interesting historian who tried to piece together Haggerty's life from the earliest uh, record that he could find to the latest records that he could find. And it's a really fascinating article. There's holes for sure. And he's trying to, to fill in as many as he can. And when he gets to the end of Haggerty's life, he he speculates a bit, but he does find two really fascinating encounters with Haggerty. Um, so Haggerty kind of drops off the map as soon as the IWW is founded, which is in 1905. Uh, Haggerty's supposed to show up at a few things and he just doesn't. And apparently, as far as anybody knows, um, nobody has, has sort of seen him after that. He just kind of disappears. And later in 1917, he actually gets discovered by an IWW comrade, a guy named Ralph Chaplin. Um, I say in the article, he's the author of the IWW hymn, Solidarity Forever, and a number of other hymns. Um, and Chaplin finds him actually living in Chicago under a different name, Ricardo Moreno. And he is apparently teaching Spanish and uh, work as an oculist, you know, repairing uh, eyeglasses and things like that. And he's living in pretty like destitute poverty. And it really moves Chaplin. Uh, Chaplin even leaves Haggerty his coat uh, out, of, out of sympathy um, and just kind of goes on his way. So that's one one kind of short vignette that we have about Haggerty's later life. Three years later, and this is the last uh, thing that Doherty records anyway, and the last thing that I could find as well, uh, John Spargo, who's a famous character in the Socialist Party and who was a rival of Haggerty's, uh, Spargo ends up finding Haggerty in Chicago as well, and Haggerty is living on Skid Row at this time. Uh, Doherty says that he he makes his life uh, begging, but he also goes to like missions and concerts and libraries and museums. And probably the most interesting thing about it is that though Spargo seems to be kind of disconcerted about, you know, the state of this person that he had worked with, uh, he says that Haggerty seemed to be a free and happy soul. And I think it's really important to let that speak to the ambiguity. You know, whatever motivated Haggerty to live this kind of life, 
nevertheless, he seemed to find himself in in a, a life that is, was totally in solidarity with the poor, and one that at least in 1920 uh, was something that he enjoyed to some extent. Um, what exactly that means, I don't know, but I think that we should allow ourselves to kind of imagine somebody like Haggerty happy in a state like that um, after kind of helping to deliver this amazing labor organization into the world uh, and, and retiring to sort of live with the poor for the rest of his life. When we talk about the history of labor and the left in North American history, we want triumphant stories. The IWW was an organization itself that knew how to sing and tell good stories about itself. Though, what do we do with a figure like Haggerty? A radical priest who gave his time and energy toward creating a radical labor movement, but in the end, who just disappears. On this ambiguity, Dean writes, Whether Haggerty died a jaded revolutionary or a mutinous mendicant who fully embraced the poor unto death can't be known. Political decisions that have a revolutionary horizon are not based solely in the brute facts of empirical history. On the contrary, as Walter Benjamin once emphasized, a critical historian sees the burning pyre of history not like a chemist, interested in the reactions of wood and ash, but like an alchemist, fixated on the mystery of life within the flame, recombining historical matter to produce spiritual materials for something new. We shouldn't be troubled, then, that Haggerty's story ends on a note of ambiguity. Those of us on the left often want to imagine stalwartly faithful saints whose lives are unwaveringly committed to the liberation of all people in the very end. We want white hats, but that's the thing about saints. Saints are saints precisely in their humanity, in their fallibility, in their complexities and ambiguities, in their often imperfect modeling of a life of love. Enduring great personal sacrifice and attesting to the love of God in an economy marked by Golgotha's, Haggerty was a saint of the working class if there ever was one. So if this is the case, then what specifically can Christians on the left take away from this hagiography of Haggerty's life? What does it mean to tell and retell the story of the left and labor in light of its religious actors? Well, I think that what Haggerty does for us is show us a way of being a Christian on the left that isn't reducible to just going to church and sort of signing up on the dotted line of whatever your culture says is the left position. So in the United States, when most people talk about the Christian left, they're talking about Democrats or, you know, Democrats who go to church. Um, and I think that somebody like Haggerty really problematizes that story. Uh, Haggerty would never in a million years have joined the Democratic Party. He didn't when he was alive, and he certainly wouldn't now. Uh, I like to think of this quote that he had uh, had said right after following up on Eugene Debs, which I think is an amazing scene. Uh, apparently, he had said in an IWW meeting, talking about electoralism, dropping pieces of paper in a hole in a box never did achieve emancipation for the working class. And in my opinion, it never will. And, you know, he said this after his friend, Eugene Debs, who is trying to get a lot of papers into a hole in a box every election, uh, had just spoken about being a socialist. And I think that's the kind of memory of the Christian left that I want to always hold on to. You know, Haggerty is somebody who is not just trying to build, he's not trying to build like a, a special secret Christian left that is always concerned about its own faith, um, but he's also not trying to uh, kind of line up on where like everybody else is trying to line up on the map in, in terms of mainstream politics. He has the courage, I think, to be motivated by both his faith and his politics to find more authentic and, and true ways of being himself in the political and religious scene. And I think that that gives us uh, just some um, encouragement for ourselves today to imagine a much broader Christian left, 
one that would be populated by people like Thomas Haggerty. I mean, there are people like Haggerty out in the world today. This isn't just a, a way of being that's completely lost to history or something. You know, we're not digging up like things from the good old days of the labor movement. Um, it's just that we have to be able to uh, look for um, where people of faith are showing up. And I think that really changes our, our perspective of both the history of the Christian left and how we might be narrating the Christian left today. If there's one thing I've learned in making the Magnificast with Dean, it's that Christianity is never only one thing. This seems like a stupidly simple point, but for me at least, it's a pretty important one. Being a Protestant myself, my experience is one of trying to locate an authentic Christianity and reading the Bible just right, which, you know, usually means through a particular bourgeois lens. Though, when we start thinking of our Christianity in light of these other stories, stories about radical priests like Father Haggerty, we can gain a depth to our faith in politics that we wouldn't have otherwise. The Christianity of communists and anarchists doesn't have to be one in search of only scriptural support. Rather, it can be constructed in light of our modern-day saints. Saints like Father Thomas Haggerty. the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Is there aught we hold in common with the greedy parasite? Who would lash us in the surf to man would crush us with his might? Is there anything left to us but to organize and fight for the union man?